0: Man, it's good to see y'all again, and good to see you guys tuning in online. We're in a series called One Another, because no matter who you are, we've all got them. We got family, friends, neighbors, roommates, uh, random strangers, and then all the people on social media in our lives. Whether you wanted them or not, whether you like them all or not, we all have one another's. And we're all trying to figure out how to one another well, how to relate to one another well. And the truth is, one anothering is something that is supposed to be a specialty of the church, something that the church is actually supposed to be known for. It's, it's founder Jesus famously said these words. We talk about them all the time around here. A new command I give you, love, there it is, one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. This right here is how you're supposed to be able to tell that there is a local church nearby because there's this group of people, or if it's big enough, there's an organization whose distinguishing mark and reputation in the community is that they want another really, really well. And while this has certainly been one of the things that has attracted so many people to Christianity through the centuries, it's also a distinctive that has proven easy to lose because sometimes it's just easier for Christians to make church about our services and our theology rather than our one anothering, isn't it? And this last year of life (laughs) has not helped. I mean, this last year has been known for anything but like really good one anothering. Whether it's from being cooped up at home or arguing about politics with people in the community, our one another muscles and habits have taken a beating, or at least they're atrophied from the isolation. And if you're anything like me, you need a little bit of a reset. And that's what this series is. This series is a call back to the basics. It's a call back to one anothering the way Jesus commanded us to one another. And as we've said every week, this isn't just for Jesus followers. No, we're talking about three practices that were you to start, resume, or accelerate doing them, they would immediately begin to make your li- our lives better, our relationships healthier, our workplaces more productive, our reputations more positive, our influence as leaders and coaches and parents more powerful, our dialogue more constructive, and I believe our community's a nicer place to live than they already are. But if you are a Jesus follower... What we're talking about in this series is doubly, doubly, doubly important for you because this is what you are supposed to be famous for in your neighborhood. It's what you are supposed to be famous for in your community, wherever it is that you live. And and I believe that if we're not careful, if we don't tune in in this season, we're going to risk losing our distinctive as Christians. We're going to risk missing out on an amazing opportunity to make Jesus famous for what he wanted to be famous for, what he wants to be famous for. And so we're spending some weeks directly addressing where we found ourselves on the other side of this pandemic and everything that happened in between. And we're seeing how Jesus' command to love one another as he has loved us ought to impact, and and I'm arguing, completely change our words to one another, our conflicts with one another, and our narratives about one another. And today, I want to talk about our narratives. According to the dictionary... A narrative is simply this right here, it's a story. It's a story that connects and explains a set of events and experiences that you have in life. And did you know that our brains are literally hardwired to form them? I'm certainly no neurologist, but I did stay at a Holiday in last night, so uh, no, I'm just kidding. I did read some articles in preparation for this. And uh, one thing I learned is that our brains, your brain is constantly looking for ways to save you time and energy. Do you know that? It's constantly looking for ways to save you mental calories. In fact, it is constantly doing both of the following, probabilistic learning and pattern learning. On one hand, your brain is constantly trying to predict what's gonna happen next, learning the odds from experience and storing them so that you don't have to run prediction models from the ground up in every situation that you're in. On the other hand, it's also constantly detecting and learning patterns, like associating cause and effect, cue and conclusion, and storing those for quick future reference so that you don't have to do them all over again. And from both of those, both of those are where our assumptions come from. It's our brain going, oh, yeah, yeah, this is one of those situations. Oh, this is one of those deals. This is one of those things. We know how these go, we can take a mental shortcut. That's the whole point. And it does this, your brain does this with everything. Like, I mean, it's why you like some dogs and don't like others. You know, your brain has a narrative about the cute, cuddly ones and in a different narrative about some of the other scarier looking ones. It's why some foods make your mouth water and some foods engage your gag reflex. Because when you don't like the taste of something or when you get a stomach bug while eating something, you remember this? Your brain stores that narrative for future reference. It's how every single person in this room, you can sometimes make flash decisions like about a movie preview or some music you just barely heard or a house on the market or an item for sale in the store. I mean, you just take a look and you're like, oh, I no, 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 that's not what I'm looking for. I I don't even have to investigate further. Why? Well, because your brain already has a narrative built about that thing. Your brain's going, oh, we know this. Think no more. That's a narrative. And our brains are hardwired to form them. It's how they're made. And this tendency of the brain is massively helpful in every day of your life when it comes to, you know, ordinary tasks, routine decisions, everyday preferences, and established habits in your life. But these are not the only things that we make narratives about. We also make narratives about people. We, I mean, just like with dogs and movies and music and food, our brains are constantly or they naturally try to make shortcuts for understanding people. They do that too. Have you ever noticed this tendency that we have to make shortcuts for people? I mean, it's kind of like... We have a stack of cue cards in our brain with talking points about all the kinds of people we've observed in the world. And we we pull them up when one of those people come along. You know what I'm talking about, this happens all the time. Like Some examples I was thinking of, like personality tests. We do this if you know any personality tests. Like let's say the Enneagram, for example. You know the one where you get like a number for your personality, anybody know that one? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, it's like when somebody tells you that they're a nine and your brain goes, oh, nine. Oh, there it is. Oh, yeah, we know who you are. You're, you're such a nine. Oh, look at you being such a nine right now. Oh, my gosh, she's totally gonna act like this, like a total nine. What's up, nine? You know, your brain loves personality tests or things like that. Why? Because it makes understanding a person far more simple than it normally is. We also do this with where you're from. You notice yourself doing this? Someone's like, oh, you're from the north. Oh, yeah, I know what you're like. You like these things and probably go to these places and probably believe these things about the world. We know you, you know. Oh, you're from the South? Oh yeah, we know you. You're probably like this and go here and you believe these things about the world. Oh, you're from California? Yep, got that one too, you know. Uh, Hey, you're from Canada? A? That's all I got on my card is A and Justin Bieber, but he's ours now, so, you know. I mean, we do that, and and we do this, with all kinds of things. I mean, even really shallow things. We do this all the time. Or it's just natural to do this with a person's clothes or their car or their house or their sports team or their social media account or just their like ordinary preferences. You're like your favorite restaurant is, what? Okay, I know who you are. You know, um, and, 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 and all we need are like just a few cues and we just need just a few data points and then we can fill in the rest of the story about you. It's how that works, Right? And of course, we're also tempted to do the exact same thing with far more serious categories like skin color or gender or political party or religious belief or relationship status or sexual orientation and the like. I mean, you just give me about one or two of those and I can take it from there. Our brains start going, oh, we know this person, think, know, more. I got it right here. We know who they are, we know what they think, and we know what we think about them. That's a narrative. Unless we forget, we're not just doing this with strangers in the community or on social media. We do this all the time with people we love. I mean, sure, we may know them far better, but that just means our narratives about them are far deeper, right? I mean, come on, spouses, we know this. We form narratives all the time about our spouse's motives and their actions. We form narratives about our family members, uh, you know, um, attitudes and behaviors and tendencies. We form them about our friends' annoying habits and their relationship decisions. We form them about our coworkers and their work ethic and their office place demeanor. I mean, we just it's just what we do. We have both a natural inclination and a practice habit of forming narratives about one another. And y'all, I don't remember a time where I saw this happening more than this past year. I mean, good night. Our narratives about one another are out of control. I mean, and it's kind of understandable. We went through a health crisis and racial crisis and a presidential election, just to name a few. I mean, but man, we just came out of a year where you could categorize somebody simply by glancing at their social media. I mean, with just like two flicks of your thumb, you could build a whole storyline about someone, or at least you thought you could, based on their posts and their likes and their politics and and, and whatever. I mean, with just a couple of flicks of our thumb, we could determine whether somebody was us or whether they were not, whether we liked them or whether we didn't, whether they were a good person or whether they were a misguided, perhaps unreasonable, maybe even kind of mean person. It's been out of control. We've spent the last year, most of us, I don't know about every one of you, but most of us have spent the last year developing and probably entrenching this habit, the habit of reducing people to this. And I think we all know that that's a problem or at least that it's causing problems. I think we all know that. I mean, like when we do it with preferences and food and dogs and music and stuff like that, it's, it's really, really helpful. But when it comes to people, this tendency of our brain to form narratives is getting in the way. It's hurting more than it's helping. And I say that because a narrative does two dangerous and destructive things with people. Number one, a narrative always with a person always does this. It always simplifies the unsimplifiable. A narrative always simplifies the unsimplifiable because it reduces somebody to a card. And then all of a sudden, their entire personality and their belief system and their struggles in life seem very, very simple. And the moment we do this, we're in trouble because we most almost certainly are gonna end up misunderstanding this person and misdiagnosing their situation. Why? Because you can't make shortcuts for people. The person on your narrative never actually exists ever because you've simplified the unsimplifiable. You've taken a complex human being with an incredibly complex backstory and worldview and reduced them to a few talking points. And anytime we do this, not only does it pretty much ensure you're never gonna actually know the person, it's also pretty offensive. I and mean, because here's the truth. I don't mind this so much when I do it to somebody else, but dang it, if I don't hate it when somebody does it to me, Man, don't you, don't you hate it when somebody puts you in a box? Don't you hate it when somebody categorizes you, when they assume something about you without ever even talking to you? Oh my goodness, absolutely. You hate it when somebody prematurely judges you by your past, labels you by your present, or condemns you by your future. You find yourself going, excuse me, I am not your narrative. You don't even know me. You haven't asked me any questions. We haven't even had a conversation. You have no idea who I am. Get out of here. But that's exactly what narratives do. They simplify the unsimplifiable. And as long as we continue to form them about the people in our lives, we are never gonna be loving, empathetic, or helpful. We're just gonna be clumsy and callous. And that's what's happening all the time now, isn't it? Especially on social media. We are being so clumsy and callous with with the way that we relate to one another. Why? Because we have developed a habit that simplifies the unsimplifiable. But a, a narrative almost always does a second dangerous thing when it comes to people. Secondly, uh, a narrative almost always permits the impermissible. Let me illustrate this real quick. My wife and I recently went on a date to a restaurant and our waitress was being rather inattentive and short, okay? And I started telling this whole storyline about her in my head. I'm like, she doesn't care about us or she's lazy or she's thinking or taking our tip for granted. And I might've gotten a smidge salty about it, okay? I'm just gonna admit Confession time. Well, my sweet wife, who's a way better person than me, actually has a conversation with this, this girl. And it turns out she's having the worst day. I mean, she's on the verge of tears and she is literally doing the best that she can. And I'm sitting there going, I am such an idiot. I feel like such an idiot. I mean, if you had asked me prior to going to dinner, hey, is it permissible for you to be salty with your waitress at dinner? I'd be like, well, no, of course not. I should be polite and kind. Of course, that's what I should do. But my marriage, she's laughing at me. Um, That cracked me up. But what happened? Why didn't I do that? Why? Because my narrative gave me permission to treat her differently. And that's what narratives do. Narratives give us permission to exempt somebody from the love one another list, don't they? Yeah. I mean, you go, wait, you voted for who? (laughs) Wait, you believe in what? Wait, wait, you're gonna act like how? Oh, you look like you're from where? Oh, I know you. In fact, I got you right here. And your value and your acceptance and your standing in the world, or at least in my world, has just been established. And that right there is exactly how in just a few minutes we can give ourselves permission to do one or all of the following to another human being. It's how we can give ourselves permission to disrespect them, insult them, ignore them, to exclude, mock, or deride someone, to devalue, abandon, or neglect someone. It's how we can give ourselves the license and permission to attack them or rob them or excommunicate them or disqualify them or pass over them or slander them or vilify them or make war upon them. Y'all, this is exactly what narratives are doing to us as families and friends and coworkers and as a country right now. Why? Because we are reducing people to a card and in the process, we're losing their value. And that's the precise moment where we feel permission. That's why I bet every single one of us, me included, has been both the victim and the perpetrator of one of the words on this screen right now in this past year. Because we, or most of us have tolerated a habit that permits the impermissible. That's what narratives do. Narratives, they simplify the unsimplifiable and they permit the impermissible. And and the truth is, the scary truth is that most of us have probably spent the last year forming them at home and in the workplace and in the community. And I think we need to wake up to the fact that we got a narrative problem. I think we need to wake up to the fact that a narrative-driven family is not a healthy family. It's an unhealthy family. A narrative-driven marriage is an unhealthy marriage. A narrative, excuse me, a narrative-driven friendship is an unhealthy friendship. A narrative-driven workplace is an unhealthy workplace. And a narrative-driven community is an unhealthy community. And so I just wanna talk about them this morning for a minute because I think we all got them. I mean, it's what our brains and our culture are saying to do, like do it, do it, do it, form a narrative. But if I could, I today would like to suggest an alternative, another way, a way that is modeled by Jesus that we could today begin to introduce to our brains and to our relationships, a, a practice or, or a set of practices actually that were we to start doing them, I believe they would break the hold of narratives on our lives and on our community and allow us to actually break through them to something way better and far more healthy. And until we do this, I think we're just gonna continue to simplify the unsimplifiable and permit the impermissible to the detriment of our families and our friends and our coworkers and neighbors. But if you're a Jesus follower, here's what's at stake for us. It's doubly important because as long as we join in with our brains and join in with our culture in this habit of forming narratives, y'all, we are never gonna be known for what we're supposed to be known for because it is impossible, not just difficult, it is impossible to love one another as Jesus has loved us while having a narrative-driven approach to the people around us. It's possible. And so for just a moment, I'd like to look at Jesus as he's described in the gospel narratives. Because even a casual reader of the gospels will quickly find out and quickly perceive that Jesus had a very peculiar and annoying habit. A habit that made him famous in some circles and infamous in others. And that is this, that Jesus was infamous for breaking narratives. Did it all the time, let me show you what I mean. Take Zacchaeus for example. Y'all heard of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a tax collector in the nation of Israel, which meant that he worked for Rome, the oppressor. He not only raised taxes for Caesar, but he lined his pockets by overcharging beyond that. Well, one day Jesus comes to his hometown and Zacchaeus wants to see what all the fuss is about. So he comes up the edge of the crowd, climbs a tree so that he can get a look at Jesus and literally everyone, I mean, every single person present knew the narrative. Anyone could have pulled out the card and read it for you. Zacchaeus is a traitor. He has no character. He has no soul. He has no conscience. He's gonna die clutching the money that he's extorted from his people. And we, well, we're Jews. We are a proud nation and a people of God, and we despise Zacchaeus. And look, here's Jesus. He's a rabbi and a holy man. And I tell you what, Zacchaeus so much as gives a peep. If he gives a peep, Jesus is going to let him know in no uncertain terms that you have no part with us, you have no part with God, and you got nothing to look forward to but judgment. That's all you got, Zacchaeus. But before anybody knows it, before they can even finish reading the card, Jesus is standing under his tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And people in the audience are like, wait, what? He's gonna hang out with him at his house? That's a sign of friendship. That's a sign of acceptance. Jesus, that is not your line. You cannot do that. Well, he does. And this day changes the trajectory of Zacchaeus's life. Zacchaeus decides this day to give half his possessions to the poor and repay anybody that he's cheated. Everybody knew the narratives, it seems, except Jesus. Or take the woman caught in adultery. I mean, like literally caught in the act of adultery, dragged out into the street in front of the religious leaders who are preparing to stone her as Jesus comes by. And here's another situation in which everybody knew the narratives. I mean, anybody could have pulled out the card and read it to you. This woman is a sinner and she deserves what's coming. These religious leaders are going to do their thing because we don't tolerate people like her in our country. And by the way, Jesus, well, he's one of them. So you just watch. He's going to be right there condemning her and picking up a rock to help. But before they knew it, I mean, before you could even read the card, Jesus is kneeling next to her. And the religious leaders are like, uh-oh, what? Like, Jesus, what do you think we should do? I mean, the law says to stoner. And this is where Jesus famously says back to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And anybody in the audience is going, what? Uh, excuse me, Jesus, that is definitely not your line. You heard what she did, no thinking required. You can't say that. What are you doing? Well, that's what he says. And one by one, they leave until it's just the two of them. And he says, woman, Does no one condemn you? No? Well, neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. Everyone knew the narrative. Well, except for Jesus, it seems. And that's just two of many stories that we could tell. I mean, we could talk about the man with leprosy whom Jesus should have sent away from his presence, but whom he laid on hands and healed instead. Or the centurion that Jesus should have rejected and hated as a soldier of Rome, but for whom he healed a member of his household instead. Or the prostitute that Jesus should have kicked out of the house and judged, um, but instead let him, her wash his feet and hang out with her him instead. I mean, every one of those situations, everybody knew the narrative, But Jesus just seemed not to, or at least he seemed not to care. He just broke right on through him every single time. In fact, it became so common with him that it eventually came back to bite him. And Luke, the historian actually records the moment when it did. And that's the main passage that I wanna look at for just a minute this morning, because Luke records this. He says, Here's what happened. So now the tax collectors and sinners, they were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Well, of course they were. He ignored the narratives. He treated them like nobody treated them. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered. (laughs) I love that, they muttered. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They mutter their accusation. Well, you know, him and, and they and him and they and they and him and all that, you know. You just hear them. And Jesus responds to their mutter. And what he says next, I believe, is so crucial for us this morning because he's about to explain why he treats people the way he treats people, how he's able to break through the narratives of his day. And in order to explain that, he's gonna tell three parables or stories. And in these three stories, Jesus is gonna offer you and me an alternative to the narratives that we all hold. And here's what he says, parable number one. He says, oh, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose, it's a parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Parable number one. Jesus is saying, hey, Pharisees and teachers of the law, you wanna know why I treat people differently from you? It's because I see people differently from you. I see them like a shepherd sees his sheep. And a good shepherd actually knows his sheep. Like they're not just generic sheep to him. No, they're like his sheep whom he knows personally. Each one has a name and each one has a story which he could tell you. Like that—that's a shepherd. It's like, yeah, this one here is uh, Q-tip, and she got the—he's got the floppy ear and born that way, really skittish. Uh, well, this one here is Fluffball, and she's got that gimpy leg because one wolf got her one time. I had to fight him off. It was kind of crazy. And uh, well, this over here is Chops, because we almost ate him for dinner one night. But we aren't gonna eat you anymore, buddy. You're so dumb, aren't you? You know, like—I mean, that's a shepherd. A shepherd knows his sheep by name and by story, which is why when he loses one, he leaves the ninety-nine to go get him. And Jesus says, you wanna know why I treat people differently? It's because I see people differently. When I look at them, I don't see narratives. I see names. I see names. I see people I know by name and story, because they're my sheep. They might just be a tax collector and an adulterer and a leopard to you, but they are so much more to me. And my friends, I hope you know that God knows your name. He knows your story. He knows what makes you quirky. He knows what brings you alive. He knows all the ways that you're beautiful. He knows all the ways that you're broken. And he knows how you came to be that way. He has numbered the hairs on your head. Why? Because he's been tuned into your story since before you were born. And the same is true of everybody you know. They are not narratives to him. They're names. They're names. That's how Jesus was able to break through so consistently where everybody else saw a narrative, he saw a name, he saw a story about which he knew every detail and cared about. It's parable number one. But evidently Jesus had more to say, so he kept going. He told a second parable. He said, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins, very valuable coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Of course she does. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. Jesus says, secondly, Pharisees and teachers of the law, I see people, I mean, I treat people differently from you because I see them differently from you. I see people like a woman sees her valuable lost coin. <laughs> and who knows where that thing is? I mean, it could be like under the couch. <laughs> you know, my couch is disgusting. My four kids. It could be behind the TV. It could be in the crease of your car seat. Ooh. I mean, and, and who knows? Who knows where it is? And who knows what it looks like now? I mean, it's been sitting in the grime and the muck and the dirt and the lint. I mean, I bet. I mean, I bet that coin is disgusting. I bet you're gonna want to purell that thing for days. That's how gross it probably is right now, but you know what? She doesn't care what it looks like to you. Why? Because she knows its value. She knows its value. She doesn't care what it looks like to you. She knows its value. And Jesus is saying, "While well, I know you understand that that's true of a coin, what I'm trying to tell you is that's true of people. That's true of people. I know their value. I know their value. I know the value that God has placed on them when He made them. And that's why when you just see a worthless tax collector, I see somebody I want to go to dinner with. When you just see a worthless adulterer, I see somebody I want to put my arm around and defend. When you just see a worthless leper, I see somebody I want to lay healing hands on. I treat them differently because I see them differently. When I look at them, I don't see narratives. No, I see numbers. I see numbers. Like just how that woman could tell you the precise value of her coin, I could tell you the precise value of every person you know. And their value isn't measured in dollars, (laughs) no way. It is not measured in human terms. It is measured by the image of God upon them and the life that I'm about to give for them. And you have no idea how high that price is. But Jesus is saying, I do. I don't see narratives, I see numbers. And my friends, I hope you know that God sees your value. You bear his image and he loves you and he wants you so much that he sent his son for you. God has placed an extraordinarily, unfathomably high number on you when he paid for you with the blood of his son. And the same is true of everyone you know or will ever meet. They are not a narrative to him. They are a number, an object of immense value. And that's how Jesus was able to so consistently break through. Because where everybody else saw a narrative, he saw a number. That's parable number two. But evidently Jesus still isn't done because he goes on to a third one. Luke records it this way. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Jesus tells the famous parable of the prodigal son. This is where that happens. You see, this younger son, he does the unthinkable. He asked for his inheritance, which is basically saying, dad, I wish you were dead. And what he decides to do is catastrophic to his relationship with his dad and his standing in the family. Culturally and like Jewish culture, that was over. I mean, he was dead and gone at that point. And to make matters worse, he basically goes to Vegas with his inheritance and squanders it on wild living. The party's over, the money's out, and he finds himself working at a pig farm, so hungry he wants to eat the pig slop. And it's from this terrible place that he has an epiphany. He's like, oh my goodness, the servants at my dad's house live better than this. I gotta go back home. I I gotta go back home and acknowledge the horrible thing that I've done and just beg my dad, will you please take me back as a servant, please? And so he sets off. And this is where it gets emotional, I think, for all of us. Because while he's still on his way, his dad sees him on the horizon. and He starts running. That's what, the Luke, that's what Jesus says. He says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his boy. He ran to his son, threw his arm around him, and he kissed him. And the son's going, dad, 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 look, I sinned against you. I sinned against God. Would you just please take me back just as your servant? And the father won't even let him finish. He's like, just stop talking because he's been scanning the horizon this whole time. He's been praying for this possibility this whole time. And he interrupts his son. He says, hey, bring the family ring here right now. And he takes that ring and he puts it back on his finger. And he tells them, you better get ready because we're about to throw the biggest party anyone's ever thrown. And everybody is shocked. The older son, he's furious. He's so furious, dad has to go out and talk to him. And this is what Jesus says in his parable. He says, my son, the father said, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost but now he's found. Jesus, I think at this point, is going, you get it? Pharisees, teachers of the law, the reason I treat people differently is because I see them differently from you. I see them like a heartbroken father sees his lost boy on the horizon. And when he arrives, everybody else is waiting with judgment, but I've been waiting with grace this whole time. I've been waiting there with grace this whole time, just on the chance that he'd come home. That's how I see people. That's how I see people where everybody else sees a narrative. I see a new beginning. Like where everybody else is so sure that Zacchaeus is gonna be a scoundrel the rest of his life and that woman's gonna be an adulterer the rest of her life and the leper's gonna be an outcast the rest of his life. I see a new story waiting to happen. I see someone who is a candidate for the mind-blowing grace of God. I see new beginnings. And my friends, I hope that you know that God will never run out of new beginnings for you. His love, it reaches to the heavens, his faithfulness stretches to the skies, and there is nowhere that you can run from his love and his grace. You can't outrun it, you can't outsend it, and you can't outspend it. He will always be searching the horizon, waiting with grace for the moment you decide to come home. Always. And that is exactly how he waits for every person you know or will ever meet. They aren't just narratives and outcasts and lost causes to him. They are new beginnings waiting to happen. There's someone with whom the grace of God is not done yet. In fact, it's probably just getting started. And that is how Jesus responds to their mutter says, hey, you wanna know why I treat people differently from you? It's because I see them differently from you. Where you just see a narrative, I see names, numbers, and new beginnings. Where you see narratives, I see names, numbers, and new beginnings. So why don't you just drop your narratives and come see what I see? Come see what I see. And that's the invitation in front of us this morning, to see as Jesus sees. Because when you see people, the way Jesus sees people, you'll treat them the way that he treats them. When you start seeing people the way that Jesus sees people, you'll start treating them the way that Jesus treats people. And that is a decision that we can make right here, right now. We can decide to trade narratives for numbers, for names, numbers, and new beginnings and start seeing the way Jesus sees. Those three things, Names, numbers, and new beginnings, they tend to keep us from simplifying the unsimplifiable and permitting the impermissible. And that's what I'd love to invite you to join me in doing this summer, what I imagine Jesus was hoping his audience would join him in doing this summer. I would love to invite you to pick one person or one category of people and start breaking through your narrative about them. Start trading your narrative for names, numbers, and new beginnings. And here's how you could practically start doing that right now. Here's like what it would potentially, practically look like in my humble opinion. If you wanna start seeing names, get to know someone's story. Start there. Get to know someone's story. The moment you hear someone's story is the moment it stops being simple. It's the moment you and I stop being clumsy and callous with whatever they're going through. And it's that easy. Just identify someone or someones with, about whom you have formed a narrative and go get to know their story. Like, listen to them explain why they believe and act the way that they do. I'm not saying you'll walk away agreeing with them, but their situation will gain the complexity and therefore the empathy that it deserves. Let's be family, friends, coworkers, and neighbors who refuse to reduce someone to this Let's be people who get to know their story, that we hear their story. Because if we do, if we do, we will increasingly, fi- increasingly find ourselves saying, hey, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I know the narrative. I heard the narrative. But it's not quite matching the name. I mean, because now I have a name. And the simple doesn't seem so simple anymore. The permissible doesn't seem so permissible anymore. That's number one. Or number two, if you wanna start seeing numbers, predecide someone's value. Draw a personal line in the sand about how valuable a human being is. You gotta do that. And it needs to be a value that is set independently of whether someone votes like you, looks like you, believes like you, posts like you, or whatever's like you. It needs to be independent of whether you like them or even understand them. And it needs to be a value that is intimidatingly high. As Christians, we believe that that standard is the image of God on a person but you've gotta decide what your standard is. And if your value of human life doesn't make you nervous to mistreat them, it is not high enough. But when it is, it changes everything. Let's be family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers who know how much someone is worth and who refuse to give ourselves or somebody else permission to treat them otherwise. Because if we do, we'll increasingly find ourselves saying like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I can know the narrative, but it's just not matching the number. I mean, because now I got a number and suddenly the simple, it don't seem so simple anymore. And the permissible sure don't seem permissible anymore. I got a a number. Or last one, number three, if you wanna start seeing new beginnings, offer someone a second chance or maybe a third. Like when other people close the book on somebody, you turn the page for another chapter. Like when other people cut off somebody, you throw them a lifeline. When other people try to cancel somebody, you just rain check on that. Why? Because you're scanning the horizon on the off chance that a new beginning is gonna come along. Man, we gotta stop trying to finish people's stories and start believing in them. Let's be people, family members, friends, neighbors, and coworkers who give second chances or third chances or fourth chances, because if we do, if we do, we'll increasingly find ourselves saying like, yeah, yeah, like I know the narrative, I heard it a million times, but it's not quite matching the new beginning that I got right here. Cause I'm seeing a new beginning for this person or for these people, or for this situation, and I believe it's gonna happen. And suddenly the simple don't seem so simple anymore. The permissible don't seem, doesn't seem permissible anymore. So what about you? How do you see people? And with whom have you settled for a narrative? About whom have you been muttering? <laughs> well, you down I don't know them, and And would you join me this summer in picking one person, one group of people, and just start doing these three things? Get to know someone's story, pre-decide someone's value, and offer someone a second chance. Will you do that? I hope you will, because if you do, you will begin trading your narratives for names, numbers, and new beginnings. And you'll begin blessing your family, friends, coworkers, and our country with something way better. But for those of us who are Christians, here's why this is not optional for us. Because these parables of Jesus, they are not random. My friends, they are our story. They're our story. Because not too long ago, we were the sheep. Right? Not too long ago, we were the ones who didn't get lost in the count because the good shepherd knew our name. And he cared so much about our story that he put on flesh and walked the earth for us. And furthermore, not too long ago, we were the coin, the mucky little coin in the dirt somewhere. But our creator saw our value. He placed such an unfathomably high number on us. And by the way, not too long ago, you and I, we were the son, we were the daughter coming over the horizon. Not too long ago, that was us coming over the horizon with none but an apology. And our heavenly father ran to us with a second chance. He ran to us to take us home. This is how Jesus has loved us. And he said, as I have loved you, you go love one another. Go love one another. This is how they're gonna know that you're mine. So what do you say? What do you say we decide right here, right now to join Jesus in trading our narratives for names, numbers, and new beginnings? What do you say we join him? Because here's the deal, he's not waiting on us. I mean, he is already actively pursuing every person on planet earth and he is already tuned into their story. He has already decided their value and he has already opened wide the door for second, third, and fourth, and fifth and infinity chances. He is already actively on mission in the world doing this and he's just inviting us to join him. The only question you gotta answer is do you wanna mutter or do you wanna matter? Do you want to mutter? Well, you know, they, uh. or do you want to matter? Do you want to be a passive observer or an active participant in what God is doing in the lives of those around you? Do you want to mutter or do you want to matter? And I think we all want to matter. So what do you say? Let's pick a person or a category of people and start trading our narratives for something better. I know it's really difficult. Our brains are set up to do otherwise. Our culture is telling us to do otherwise. But maybe we just need to begin with this prayer right here. Maybe we just need to begin here and praying today and maybe even pray every day this week. Maybe we just need to begin praying, hey God, will you help me see others the way that you see them so that I can treat others the way that you treat them? God, will you help me see others? Help me, I need help. Will you help me see others the way that you see them so that I can treat others the way that you treat them, the way that you've treated me? Why don't you ask God that? Why don't we pray that every day this week? Ask God to give you eyes like Jesus so you can start telling stories like Jesus. Let's stop simplifying the unsimplifiable and permitting the impermissible and let's break through our narratives to something better. Let's start trading our narratives for names, numbers, and new beginnings, and love one another as he has loved us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see as you do. Help us, help us see people as you see people so that we can have a shot, a chance of treating them like you did because we want to. We want to break through our narratives. So help us trade them for names, numbers, and new beginnings. And may you do an incredible, incredible work in our families, in our friends, in our coworkers, and in our country as a result. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.